Welcome back, everybody. I'm Liz Bell from Radical Hope. Uh, Radical Hope was founded back in 2018 by Pam and Phil Martin when they lost their son, Chris, to suicide. Uh, Chris was a junior at Gonzaga University at the time. And Pam and Phil immediately started focusing on ways to help young adults who face the same kinds of challenges that Chris faced during his time at college and even a little bit earlier than that. So we're committed to strengthening connections and building resilience in young lives. And toward that end, we have a very special guest today who knows a lot about this, Alexander Kafka. Alex is a senior editor for the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, and has worked as a reporter and editor for Newsday uh, and for many other newspapers. He's also written about books and the arts for the American Prospect, The Atlantic, The Boston Globe, The Chicago Tribune, The Washington Post, The Weekly Standard, and many others. Um, most interestingly, he's also written three screenplays, one of which was adapted for the stage. So we have a Renaissance man with us today. Um, in his position as senior editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education, he has written extensively on the mental health challenges faced by college students, both during the pandemic, but before and even now as we're going into this next chapter. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So welcome, Alex, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Liz. I'm uh, really grateful and honored to be on Radical Hope Radio. You are, you know, uh, so widely read and respected. And I'm just wondering, before we dive into some of the substance of what you've been covering, you know, how are you feeling big picture about the landscape um, on college campuses these days and also high schools? But um, just, you know, how, with how students are doing, both mentally and academically. Well, we'll get into more details. It's, uh, as you know, a mixed picture. I guess by temperament, I am a uh, cautious optimist. And I would say the headline of the overall story is a positive one about resilience. Uh, but there are a lot of caveats to that. Students are having a lot of trouble academically, and they're having a lot of trouble socially. And when you look at the statistics about uh, younger teens uh, in K through 12, uh, emergency room visits for mental health reasons and things like that, stats from the CDC, uh, those are also alarming. And so I am concerned about today's college students and I'm uh, just as concerned about tomorrow's. Well, you know, we've, we've all seen those statistics um, and, and they are alarming. And one of the big issues, and I, and I know you've covered this in, in, in your writing here, is, you know, what actually should rise or does rise to the level of needing clinical help and serious clinical support and medical attention? And what, and what issues actually should young people be able to address, you know, on their own or with the support of, of you know, their family, their friends, and, and a community, even even a school community. You know, I talk to college administrators every day, and this challenge of you know proportion, if you will, sort of what what really sh should the schools be focused on, and what what are they required to pay attention to, and what really are the kinds of issues that are now almost demanding clinical attention that during your your and my time in school really just um, were often solved by, by peer support? That's a really great question, Liz, and a complicated one. And when you talk about what 
schools are required to do versus what they just feel they should do because of their mission and their role in society, uh, that gets even more complicated because I've also written about risk management and liability concerns and things like that. But let's take a step back and look at the so-called stepped care model advanced by Peter Cornish, now of Berkeley and other clinicians. Uh, And that model was already coming into its own pre-COVID. That meant that students with the most acute crises could be treated quickly and in person, while others might be better handled through group therapy, affinity groups, academic or other student success advising, or with tailored help with financial aid, housing, food, insecurity, work-study balance, and so on. It's a kind of mental health triage model. Uh, So a few years before the pandemic, that model was still considered a little weird by some, but now it's become quite standard. And the nature and the volume of students' psychological needs during the pandemic meant that the stepped care universe expanded even further into teletherapy services, online mental health forums, and hundreds of wellness, mindfulness, and meditation apps. The way Cornish and Brian Olawude, his counterpart at UC Santa Barbara, put it to me was something like this. The world is stressful. COVID, social, racial, and political strife, global warming, war, refugee, and immigration crises, and on and on. And if a student isn't at least a little stressed out by that world, then that would be worrisome because the student isn't paying attention. But does every student who experiences stress need frequent, regular, in-person, one-on-one clinical therapy? Uh, No, these experts say. Uh, Those other options, uh, therapeutic or affinity groups, peer support, participation in athletics or the arts, and socially and civically active groups, uh, help with financial, family, or other concerns, all those might be much more helpful and appropriate than, you know, classic regular weekly sit-downs with a therapist. And on the flip side, if a student is in acute crisis, they might need hospitalization or a consult with a psychiatric center that can better monitor their meds, or they might need the services of an eating disorder clinic or some other institutional help. So there's a big ecology of support and treatment options, and counseling centers simply can't be the reflexive go-to solution for every problem. So you just raised something that's just so important and something that I talk to parents about a lot and to students. You know, we're working with students on campuses across the country, and that is this sense of powerlessness that young people feel right now feel right now over the bigger issues like you just described, whether that's global warming, gun violence, racism, um, you know, um, a whole host of issues. So they, so they lie in bed at night and they're 13 years old and they're staring at the ceiling and they're thinking, oh my gosh, the wor- literally the world's coming to an end and I can't do anything about it. And they feel so completely, not just depressed, but, but, but powerless to help. And yet there are many little things that they could do or can do every day to have better control over their life, including just better control over their emotions and their stress. And that's managing everything from well, my job is to you know do my homework, be a good member of my community, 
be a good, you know, sibling, help a neighbor, all those kinds of things that there's this wild disconnect almost. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on sort of what's contributing to the powerlessness, how much of this is just information overload, but the idea that a 12 or 13 year old would take his own life or need, you know, constant clinical care and support because they're worried about gun violence is how are we going to manage this? I mean, what kind of skills and tools can we give these young people to feel like they have better control over their day-to-day lives and their futures? Well, one of the great things that colleges were doing even before the pandemic, Liz, was stressing that not just a stepped care approach, but the peer support and foundations uh, like Radical Hope, like the Jordan Porco Foundation, um, Active Minds, the Steve Fund, uh, all kinds of different groups are helping America's 4,000 or so institutions of higher ed uh, with um, their training and education of students in terms of mindfulness and coping. And they're also helping some of those younger students that you mentioned. And so, yes, the problems are daunting, but I think the um, lifting of stigma in recent years and the number of resources available, many of them for free, um, are also uh, a real factor here and an encouraging one. It's not that there weren't awful anxieties in the past when you think about the civil rights era and the turbulence with assassinations and you know all kinds of things. So every era has its defining sets of crises, and this one certainly does too. In a way, the crises right now uh, seem uh, so glaring, and they are. But I guess one of the things that the mindfulness proponents uh, put forth is to get a little perspective, not just on what the world is facing now versus other times, but how much you can and cannot do about it. And to turn your anxieties into uh, passions and constructive pursuits. And uh, maybe we'll talk about her a little bit later in the program, but um, the work of Angela Duckworth. Yes, I want to talk about her. Yeah, at the University of Pennsylvania is very much along those lines, channeling one's anxieties into uh, a course of study or professional goals, that kind of thing. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, did I? <laughs> no, you did a bit. I'm just wondering, yeah, part of this is about skills and right skill building and managing our own individual stress. And part of it is absolutely about, it got to be about perspective, as you said, and context. And for us older folk, you know, we can look back at history and and recognize exactly what you just said, different protests eras and eras of war and other things. But um, it's, I, I think that the biggest value that I've seen uh, so far on, uh, certainly with our program, Radical radical Health on campuses, and I, I by the way, Active Minds and Steve, the Steve Fund, they do such great work. I've talked to Allison Melman many times at Active Minds. Um, is, this, is this opportunity for students to connect? You know, the way our program works is, you know, the, the students are organized into groups. They meet once a week. 
all focused on skill building somewhat in a Trojan horse way, but, um, and they review and share um, curated materials and resources that we've got that address self-care and empathy and, you know, how to connect with others and manage your stress cycle. But the, the, the hour and 15 minutes that the groups spend together is the heartbeat of the program. Just being with other folks who are going through an experience you are, whether that's just, you know, a tough exam week at school or concerns about, you know, student athlete suicides that have taken, you know, that are you know, in the national spotlight right now. It's knowing they're not alone and just having a group of peers who understand how they feel. And it sounds so simple, but there really aren't that many structured opportunities for young people these days to get together or informal opportunities. They were spending so much time, as you know, on their phones alone, that false sense of connection just because they're all on the same app or on the, in the same chat room or whatever they're doing. But th- this actually in-person opportunity just to talk and take a deep breath is it providing you tremendous relief. And frankly, it's really gratifying to see because obviously it's something that can be done anywhere and it's free. You can get five people in a room, two people in a room, a hundred people in a room. So I think more of that will certainly go a long way. Just finding, and even if you have to contrive them, ways for, for people to connect. Right. Well, I think there are two things um, at the college level uh, that relate to that. I mean, one is that, as you know from uh, Dr. Zoe Raguzios um, at NYU, they put a lot of emphasis on groups. And that can mean sort of group therapy in a more classic clinical sense. But she also stresses the importance of various kinds of affinity groups that have less of that clinical aura and they're endlessly adaptable. They can be for performing arts students or athletes or LGBTQ plus communities or whatever, or they can be focused around uh, one or another kind of therapy, say art therapy or dialectical behavior therapy, which has been described to me as sort of a East meets West approach to behavioral change. Uh, So that's great. But then far from the counseling center or anything organized by the counseling center, you know, one of the things Angela Duckworth told me is that colleges are therapeutic simply by functioning well and doing their jobs you know, a professor who is running a well-run class where students feel involved and appreciated, a class that offers them clear structure uh, and lots of academic and other support is a very healthy thing. And the other aspects of college, whether it's, you know, at a lot of division three schools, something like two thirds of the students are involved in athletics, not necessarily super varsity type sports, you know, they could be club, intramural, whatever. Uh, But it's a big part of campus life, just like, you know, choirs and orchestras and clubs and any kind of other activities are. So she makes the point and others make the point that colleges, just by being open, by managing COVID and other stressors well, and functioning are playing a pivotal role 
by providing some of that social space that you describe. It's so well put, so well put by her. She, her work is out, it's outstanding. And for those who don't know, she, she runs the Grit Lab, which is just an, also just a great name. Um, the, her program at, at UPenn is just quite a lot of research that's been published widely. So um, I would encourage everyone to read it. I don't know if you want to talk any more about what she's done with that um, also. But, you know, interestingly, you know, when we started Radical Health, we wanted to get really address three issues that really had been the Chris Martin's experience at Gonzaga. One was he, he, he lacked some of the fundamental skills just to, to transition to college life again, around self-care and connecting with others and managing his time and frankly common stressors for, for college age kids. But the second one was that there was this big gap between what he thought was available to him um, in the way of resources, and I, and I, and I don't just mean the counseling center, things like you know clubs, activities, like you said, band, joining the band, joining the debate club, participating in a sport, and what the school had to offer. And you know these schools are so frustrated. So many of these campuses have robust programs and activities that get from the arts, sports, you know, theater, um, career advancement programs, all kinds of. And, you know, students say, there's nothing here for me. And the schools are scratching their heads saying, no, no, we've got, you know, a thousand programs. So we're working with the school partners we have with Radical Health to bridge that gap, to actually promote and incorporate any local campus resources into the, into the program we have so that students just have another way to engage. Because like you said, you know, schools, if they're doing their jobs, well, they have these activities, but getting the students there is a whole other, um, is a challenge. I saw. I, I read in your report that the Hope Center study in Amarillo College found um, that engaging students through regular emails was actually really productive. I mean, right? I mean, this is a big lift for schools to constantly be focusing on trying to get the kids in any way they can to, to participate. Right. The, well, there are a couple elements there, um, and I'm really br- glad that you brought these up, Liz. One thing is that particularly. Uh, since the pandemic began, uh, students don't necessarily know how to, quote, do college. Uh, A lot of, not just academically, but socially and in terms of those engagement things you're talking about. And one thing colleges have been uh, trying, uh, not just for mental health and wellness, but overall student success, is to get students engaged and give them a feeling of belonging uh, before they get to campus, uh, long before they get to campus in some cases. And that can mean by connecting with peers by, you know, phone or web before they get there, uh, if they can't get there for a campus visit, and many students can't afford to or logistically can't work that out. And uh, there are a couple colleges that I highlight in the report um, that deal uh, in their very mission with students who have neurodiverse conditions or learning disabilities. I'm thinking of Beacon College in Florida, for instance, and uh, Landmark College in Vermont. And for years, they've been rolling out some really interesting long-term pre-orientations that last for months. So that it's not like, you know, in the bad old days when uh, you and I, I think, went to college and had like a quickie orientation, maybe sort of an adventure 
camping week or a few days or whatever. And they basically said, okay, you know, here's a bunch of papers about how everything works. Your whole life's going to change. Get used to it, (laughs) which can be pretty jarring. And with these orientation programs, students learn much more in advance what to expect academically, socially, what dorm life is like, all those activities you mentioned. And um, so-called mainstream colleges, which have an increasing number of neurodiverse and other students anyway, um, are, you know, taking their cue from, from these programs and saying, okay, you know, maybe we're too big to uh, scale all the parts of this up, but at least some of them we can learn from. So I, I think that's a, that's a really important lesson to take from those specialized colleges. No, I, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I was really happy, not more than happy, impressed to see that you focused on that. Um, I actually have done quite a bit of work in the autism space. And, you know, the neurodiverse community is far broader than just people who are on the autism spectrum. And they are, I think, close to 20% of students on college campuses now identify as neurodiverse, which right. is... It, this is these are not this is not a subset of the population. It is a very significant part of the population. It is. And as you well know, Liz, the when you include neurodiverse students, students with learning disabilities, students with um, psychiatric histories before they come to college, students with uh, substance use issues. When you add all those up, so-called mainstream colleges, you know, the the term becomes not meaningless, but but certainly murky. And, you know, the story of of um, colleges uh, admissions over recent decades is really interesting. They've been taking students who, you know, maybe 50 years ago or something might simply not have gone to college because there weren't the accommodations and the opportunities available to them. So, in terms of inclusiveness, uh, that's great. In terms of the burden that college health services and particularly counseling services bear, it's been really hard because they've been overwhelmed. And so I think that's part of the reason that this kind of peer support, drawing faculty and staff members, particularly student affairs staff, uh, into overall student wellness, I think that's partly why that's come about. Yes. Yep. I guess right by, by necessity. Um, right. I want to turn our attention to your um, recent report, Building Students' Resilience. And I know you touched on a little bit just with some big headlines earlier saying that as an optimist, which I appreciate and share your, your view, um, what, which you published last November, what what was the most important thing to come for you or were there any big surprise learnings you had as, as you were preparing the, the report? Sure. Well, there were a few. Uh, first off, that the twin pandemics of COVID and social and racial strife exacerbated but did not cause in and of themselves the alarming rates we're seeing of depression and anxiety since March 2020. Those were already trending upwards steadily for a decade. Uh, for details on that, you know, by all means, read my report. I'd love it if you did. But you can also search online for some statistics, for instance, from the Healthy Mind Study run by Sarah Lipson of Boston University and her colleagues. 
secondly, that the traditional campus counseling center model, which was already overwhelmed before COVID, was strained even further, but that the tiered treatment models we've talked about, the peer education and counseling, telehealth, and some really interesting new hybrid behavioral therapies were filling at least some of the gaps. And then finally, that although this is in some ways obviously a somber topic, there's a lot of good news too in the resilience, empathy, and compassion that students uh, were finding in themselves and in each other. Uh, You know, the number of students who need help is alarming in one sense, but the number of students seeking help is also great in that that's exactly what they should do if they are feeling emotionally at a loss or in danger. Uh, Seeking help is what colleges and K-12 schools have been training these students to do. So let's not forget that when they reach out for help, that's what colleges have been aiming for. No, that absolutely the right point there. And I think, you know, as you said earlier, you know, we're talking about Angela Duckworth and what the schools can do if they're functioning well is, you know, there are a lot of ways to, to be a role model or a mentor or just an informal advisor to a student outside of the scope of the, of the counseling center, right? So whether that's just a professor who's welcoming, a TA, a coach, all of the above, it's a culture on a campus that matters, this whole culture of caring and a sense of community. And, you know, there's been, I I know that for the last 15 years, there's been so much talk about this performance society and the students feel like they have to get, you know, everything is about getting an A and being the highest gold score and getting the best internship on Wall Street for the summer and on and on. Um, But the fact is most of the students who I talk to that's not they, that's intrinsically not what their priorities are. They want to fit in. They want to do well and they want to make connections. But this the, the external pressures are things that they are trying to navigate. So having people who uh, support them and show them that there are other values that they can you know uh, uh, execute on, if you will, you know, and that they make really actually to help them make the most out of their four years at school and to remind these students that. They're there. It's their time. Gosh knows they're paying for it. That you know they should figure out what they want to do and and follow up on it and not just try to um, meet some sort of external or abstract standard of of, of performance. It's a, it's very, been very tricky, very tricky it, for this generation. It is tricky. You know, it's interesting, Liz. When I cover topics that are not directly related to mental health, they often overlap with mental health anyway. And I've been doing a lot of reporting since the uh, student resilience report on student success as part of a big Ascendium-sponsored project the Chronicle's been working on. And that kind of wraparound support where every student is, at least in theory, if things work well, surrounded by academic advisors, student success advisors, student life help, um, help with financial aid, um, housing and food insecurity, etc. They've got like sort of a protective, I don't want to say bubble around them because that's, it's not quite as gentle as that. There are still lots of demands on any student, but certainly a circle of support. And One of the things that I think has gone right during the pandemic, 
that again had started before but was sort of accelerated is that all those different parts of the university that might have been siloed off from each other a bit before communicate better with each other now so that if a student is having trouble academically, even within the very first few weeks of the semester, their professor will notify academic advising. Uh, They might talk to uh, residential staff to say, hey, is there something else going on with this student? Uh, They might talk to financial aid staff to say, um, you know, there was a mention that their parent had been laid off or that a grandparent had died of COVID or whatever. They're talking to each other um, in a more constructive and more helpful way than they did, I think, even five years ago. No, uh, it's interesting. I, I spoke to one of our partners out in California, school partners. Uh, they're actually starting with us this fall. And a woman who runs part of the counseling department told me that they have um, instituted this wellness check, these protocols along the lines of what you just described. You know, if a student doesn't show up for class, you know, for a whole week, if a student, the RA hasn't laid eyes on the person, if he hasn't showed up, he or she hasn't shown up for an activity that they used to do, there are a lot more eyes now in each of these students because students are literally disappearing. One school we work with in Florida told me they call it ghosting now, that the students might reach out for help for a while if they're struggling with something and then suddenly they're just gone. And nobody knows where they are. They might just leave for two weeks. They might camp out in a tent, which is terrifying. So knowing that, you know, that all these different parts of the ecosystem on campus are keyed in to these individual students and some of their issues is, first of all, the parents are are demanding it now, but it's it's what's required. And again, it gets back to the culture too. You're right. It used to be so, here's academics, here's sports, here's have you found um, in your conversations and your your reporting on campuses around the country that there are specific cohorts, and I'll include minority students as, as a broadly as a cohort, who are experiencing a tougher time than others? So you know, LGBTQ plus groups, first gen students. We've done, we're doing a lot of work with first gen students, um, again, student athletes. Do you, do you see very significant? Um, either differences or 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 degrees of um, concern around their mental health or their performance or their experiences. Uh, that's a great question, and it's a complicated one. So the the short answer is yes. In any given week, you're going to hear about. Uh, issues with one group or another. Recently, the attention has been on uh, athletes because of some high-profile tragedies involving athletes. Um, Certainly, uh, students from underrepresented minority groups, LGBTQ plus students, um, have special concerns that I think colleges are uh, wise to take into consideration. Um, but I guess my overall feeling is that all students at one time or another during their college years are likely to feel lost and feel some great pressures to the level that might merit concern of the college. And that even though it's good to pay attention to the care of these 
um, communities within a college campus. I think smart college leaders realize that they they really need to think about the college culture uh, and campus culture overall. You know, when I think back on some of the interviews I did with students for the Resilience Report, it's often quiet students who are functioning well academically, but sort of drowning a little bit internally. Uh, I don't know if that's the right phrase uh, that um, that stick in my mind. For instance, there was one woman who she was entering uh, Berkeley. She was from the Bay Area and her parents were both critical care nurses uh, during, I think nurses, um, some kind of clinician uh, during COVID. And not only were taking extra hours and extra shifts and working 12, 16 hour days, but commuting to hospitals that were an hour and a half away. And bottom line is this student who already had a history of social anxiety and some depression herself uh, was kind of taking care of herself and her two younger siblings um, while her parents uh, just couldn't be around that much. And she was functioning very well academically and doing all kinds of clubs and taking up distance running and all kinds of stuff. Um, And yet she was very sad, very anxious, uh, very eager to be in in in-person therapy. She had this quote that just still haunts me, honestly, where she was saying, Zoom therapy just wouldn't do it because you can't cry on Zoom. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so I I don't think it's just students who have some sort of obvious stressors. Um, I think sometimes it's the students who are super quiet and uh, seeming to do just fine that are nonetheless of of great concern. Yes, Um, the ones who fly below the radar a bit that way and don't draw attention to themselves for sure. Right. So so I worry sometimes that focusing too much on one group or another on campus can be a little divisive and misleading. But I, I guess I'm venturing a little editorializing there, which I probably you know, shouldn't. No, no. And I'll tell you, when we were first working with NYU to, to develop and pilot radical health and Zoe and, and, and Linda Mills just were outstanding leaders in this. Um, we we talked to dozens of students across the country, not just students at NYU, as we were framing the the curriculum, and also behavioral health, you know, specialists and psychologists and other academic leaders. But we, the 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 stressors identified by students were remarkably consistent, whether they were male, female, um, international students, local, you know, American students. Um, athletes, uh, artists, it, it didn't matter. They were, you know, time management, making friends, living on a budget at school, doing, you know, performing well, self-care, very consistent stressors. You know, it wasn't like there were these outliers where we said, oh, only this group is worried about X. So I think you're right. The, the schools need to address the student body as a whole. Everyone will benefit being mindful that there are sensitivities around different things. Right. And I even the best students... Uh, even the best students, Liz, and I'm sure you've heard this, you know, complain that uh, COVID has messed with their attention spans uh, in some ways. And I think 
those time management, just managing tasks, breaking them down into workable, less daunting pieces, going at them systematically, that kind of thing. You know, we can all use a refresher in in those skills at any time, right? Yes. No, there's no question about it. We say that all the time in our stuff. Our material is appropriate for a kindergartner and and an 80-year-old. It's it's true. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to have two two more things. One is, um, you know, I want all of our listeners to know that the report is formally called Building Students' Resilience Strategies to Support Their Mental Health. And it was published in November of 2021. And you can get it if you go on Amazon. But you really did it. It's, It's almost a gift to these schools. You, well, you provide to the schools themselves or strategies based on all the interviews and, and, and the research that you did. And I'm, I'd love to hear how they, how they responded, what the reaction's been, and um, what, what kind of feedback you've gotten, because really, you did their homework for them. Well, that's very kind. Uh, I think you're giving me a little too much credit, though. You know, I'm, I'm a reporter, not a clinician, not a college administrator. And really, the lessons from that report, and I hope they are helpful, uh, really reflect what I heard from, I forget how many dozens of people (laughs) I spoke to for that report, but it was a lot. Um, And uh, I think colleges are learning from each other. And in addition to those communication pathways within colleges that we've talked about, you know, when you go to a meeting of, say, the Council of Independent Colleges and go to the panel discussions, COVID's been traumatic for everyone, college leaders, faculty, staff as well. And just like students, they are still sorting out these lessons and trying to make sense of them. And, you know, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about it. Uh, higher ed is among other things in industry and colleges do compete with each other. But I think there is a lot of goodwill out there, a sense of overall mission for higher education institutions, and they all want to do the right thing. And I think sharing best practices through our reports, through association meetings, things like that, uh, that's really important. No, I think you've just hit on something that is also such a positive sign here that the schools are reaching out and asking. I've seen this in our universe of, of, of partners uh, rather than competing. And of course they all compete for students and for professors and things, but th- these are such new and challenging times that they're everyone's willingness to say, we really need help or we're not sure about this or what have you seen? That's a, that's a very positive development. Yeah. And it would be, you know, it would be one thing, Liz, if, college's business interests somehow ran against some of these best practices, but they don't. Doing the right thing for students, faculty, and staff is also the right thing for colleges' long-term sustainability and their uh, own business viability. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's, it's smart for them. Um, can you just add my last question to you, and then I want you to add anything that I've overlooked here, but you know, can you just w- walk us through the Chronicle's interest in the mental health of college students, where it started? Did it start long prior to the pandemic or this was something that you brought to the to the table? Because it's just it's just been invaluable for, for, for everybody. 
Sure. Uh, well, I appreciate that. And yeah, for people who aren't familiar with the Chronicle or only vaguely familiar with it, it dates back to 1966. We're based in Washington, D.C. We are a news and information source in print and online. Um, I love the place. I've been there since 1998. And if people have questions about it, uh, feel free to email me, alexander.kafka at chronicle.com, and I'll try to steer you to the right resources. Uh, but to answer your question, Liz, the Chronicle's covered mental health and wellness uh, of students, faculty, and staff really throughout its history. Um, I was writing about the topic pre-pandemic, as were my colleagues Sarah Brown and others. And my focus just prior to COVID was on mental health leave policies suicide prevention and postvention strategies, the strain on overwhelmed and overworked counseling centers, and the then budding teletherapy industry, which has, of course, boomed. Well, that's, is that a long way from when you were writing about the, 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 year, the later years of Walt Whitman and, and your other <laughs> screenplays? That was some transition. Let's close on that. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's a twist I wasn't expecting. Honestly, the the screenplays and and plays uh, originated decades before and have nothing to do with my higher ed reporter. But on the off chance that there are, you know, any um, uh, wealthy and well-resourced movie and stage producers out there, by all means, look me up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but it's sure it's obviously you've informed your writing, too. It's, you know, so compelling and, and provocative. So thank you. It's just been such a pleasure to have you here. And I don't know if you want to add anything else in closing, but I want to thank you on behalf of everybody at, at Radical Hope and also our, our school partners. And we'll be announcing the rest of them fairly soon. We've got 27 lined up for the fall with others um, coming on board in January as well. So the more we can you know, all talk about this shared mission we have of, of improving the, the wellness of young adults, uh, the better we'll be. So No, I just want to thank you for the opportunity, Liz, um, and the great and difficult and important work that Radical Hope and other organizations are doing. And I'm grateful for your listeners' attention. Uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much.